going to do Q&A time. I'm going to start. I've got a list of questions I want to ask these guys and uh, just to kind of get things warmed up. And then you guys can ask any questions you want to ask. Uh, I was told that Caleb Noctegall is the one who won the free weekend. So uh, somebody won. Where is Caleb? All right. Awesome. That's good. That's good. Check will come in the mail this week, Caleb. <laughs> should say the check is in the mail is how that's going to no, go. See, I'm, I'm already feeling like this is going to be like herding cats up here. So uh, we'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how all of this goes. So my first question is for you, Dallas, and it's uh, asking you to explain how the law and gospel are different as far as following Jesus uh, is law or gospel. Why is it not the gospel? Talk about following Jesus and where that fits. Is it is an interesting question, though. I, I asked it to somebody else. I'll preface it this way. And they first asked me, what do you mean by following Jesus? Uh, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. So, I mean, what do you mean by following Jesus? And if somebody, you come into a conversation with somebody, I think it's fair to ask them to explain, you know, what do you mean by that when you're talking about it? Because this person said, well, you know, following Jesus means believing in, in Christ and what he did on the cross, and he's the one that is, you know, forgives my sins, and I can't, I can't get, I can't justify myself, and I have to look to Christ for justification. It's like, okay, but, you know, he did a great job the other day. Most of the time, people talk about following Jesus, and what are they talking about? Well, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to live a life that is, that is pleasing to to Christ. I'm trying to uh, do good in the world. You know, fill in the blank in the different ways that someone would say, I'm trying to follow Jesus. Even those good things, I'm trying to love my wife. I'm trying to, to be more patient. I'm trying to forgive. The problem is, is that if that following of Jesus and however you fill in the blank there somehow contributes to your justification before God and your acceptance before God, then you're off on the wrong track. Awesome. And you don't... You're not following Jesus. You're really not following Jesus because you haven't believed the gospel, which is actually a declaration, right? It's good news about what Jesus has done for you, not the way that you're following him. Because, well, you know, we always fall short that way. And so you need to look to him and him alone. Awesome. Next question is for you, Chris. And if you would talk about federal headship and how the law gospel issue relates to federal headship. And maybe first you better at least give us, tell us what it is. Um, Federal, well, it's just a Latin word for covenant. Um, So maybe that helps with what it is. Headship is representation. Uh, So the word federal, Latin word for uh, covenantal, covenant. When we talk about headship, we're talking about representation. So we have a legal, covenantal, representative for those who are in that relationship, that legal representation with that head, uh, that leader. Um, when it comes to law gospel categories, we would go to Romans chapter 5. Uh, if you look at, and I have it there before me, because it's very helpful, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, context will be Adam, the many were made sinners. And that, that word there, we look at that and we think, well, we're transformed into sinners. Um, and the reason why it's important is because if you keep going, so by the one man's, dis- or the one man's obedience, that's Christ, 
the many will be made righteous. And we look at that word and we think uh, transformative. Uh, that word is katastemi. It, it's constituted. It's another covenantal word. And if you trace that word katastemi, uh, or made righteous, or made sinners, tra- you translate it constituted, trace that word in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Luke 12. You know, it's a master constituting uh, stewardship responsibilities to a servant. It's a, a covenantal transaction, a constitutional transaction. You get them when you sign on with your job and you're saying, I'm going to fulfill this responsibility for my business. You don't, you're a breach of contract. This is what that word is. We get it in being an American citizen. There's constitution and there's blessings of being a citizen. But if you break that, you're a trespasser, you're um, guilty of treason. It's to be in a constitutional legal relationship. We have offices that represent us, and we're, we're part of that. So when it comes to the law, then, that's the context of Romans 5, as Pat just led us in. You have words of trespass. It's a law word. You have obedience. Law word. You have disobedience. Law word. You have righteousness. Law word. But in that context, you have Adam, who by his disobedience, the many were constituted, so they are represented by Adam, and his disobedience is credited or constituted to those he represents. On the reverse side, Christ Jesus, the, the, the one man here who obeyed, Romans 5.19, the one man's obedience, the many, will be constituted, declared, in covenantal relationship, righteous. So that's representation. So when it comes now to the law and gospel, um, flesh that out a little bit. You look at the storyline of Scripture, God gave Adam a very simple command as our federal or constitutional or covenantal representative to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From the day he will eat of it, he will die. And he happened to have a nation. We are all constituted in him. And he was called to obey and gain access to the tree of life. Obedience, life. Disobedience, death. And when we, he broke law, we, we sinned in Adam constitutionally, covenantally, federally as our representative. Uh, that's been imputed and reckoned to our account. Um, that's the law. Christ came to what? Obey. Romans 5.19, to obey the law. Um, we saw last night in Matthew 3, he came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. So he obeys the law and fulfills it, taking its obedience and its curse, both the positive and the negative. What does he say? So that the many would be constituted righteous, declared righteous. So the glories of the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ did what Adam didn't. He fulfilled the law and took its curse for us. And so we, by faith, rest in Jesus Christ, who is the obedient law keeper, the, our federal head. Hopefully that helps. A little bit. Awesome. So along those lines, Chris, if you, if you don't believe in the federal headship of Adam... It's not a guarantee, but would you say it's likely you're not going to believe in a law gospel distinction? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you're left with how did how did how do we get sin? And there's a lot of debate on. Uh, well, it's transmitted somehow genetically. So there's some kind of spiritual genetics that we get passed on. Uh, so it takes it takes it completely out of the righteous law category and puts it into simply this relational category in which you're going, well, what does it mean? <laughs> so even sin can't be defined because it's not defined legally. And then righteousness, 
So if it's communicated the same way, apart from a legal representative, how do you deal with it in light of law? So, yeah, it's absolutely critical. And if it were, if we were, sin, were sinful because of genetics from Adam, what's the problem with that when it comes to Jesus? Yeah. So who can claim ancestry to Jesus Christ? <laughs> uh, Only the LDS. We're Gentiles. <laughs> we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Uh, it's, yeah, the... Imputed righteousness of Christ, legal representation is our only hope. As Machen said when he was dying, he said, thank God for the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's, he's going to close his eyes, draw his last breath, and he knew that's his only, his only hope. Awesome. So next question has to do with, I mean, I think these things are practical because it's understanding your Bible and salvation in Christ. But uh, the next one's practical in another sense, and it would have to do with uh, how important this issue of seeing law and gospel as distinct um, when it comes to helping people, um, because it is important when it comes to things like counseling. So that would be directed to you, Dave. H- how does a law gospel distinction help when it comes to helping people? I think we see the distinction pretty clearly in terms of our justification, but when it comes to sanctification, you have to really rightly understand the gospel. You hear echoed in the hallways a lot at OBC to, to preach the gospel to yourself, to remember the gospel but we're self-righteous by nature and we want to seek the law, which is when we're in sin and we're spiraling down that hole, the desire is to try and gain favor. And I think we would take more of a Catholic view, which would be penance. We want to do penance. What can I do to try and make myself right with God? I'll be in the word more. I'll, I'll pray more. I'll love my family more. It's the do more, try harder. And and that's just continuing to to be self-righteous. Instead, we need to remember the gospel and what Christ has done in our union with Christ. And as such, then, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And what we need to be able to do is then say, out of my gratitude for God's grace, now I need to be obedient. And from that, then, do those things. But motivated by the gospel and fueled by our desire of gratitude, unto the Lord. And that breaks that desire to try and do it in my own flesh, but instead do it in the spirit in Christ, which is intended. And when we counsel to ourselves that way or with others, that's really where we see gospel powered victory over sin and that sanctification. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, Todd, next one's for you. Um, talk about whether or not and how, uh, I'm going to call it a law gospel paradigm, which is what I've been presenting to you. Um, how that might be abused um, and taken the wrong way. All righty. Um, yes, for sure. It can be taken the wrong way. Pat even mentioned one, I think Friday night about the sermon he listened to where it was a gospel message. It was about the person and work of Christ and what he did for us. It's back to knowing the gospel uh, but instead of preaching that, and because the text was there, he preached how to. He preached the law. Um, so he totally misunderstood what the text was even saying. And Pat even confessed that he was he's always looking for, and we were trained in seminary the same way, put a plural noun proposition. Um, so I'm going to tell you four things so that you can... And so in a sense, you're kind of in a default mode to preach the law all the time. And our hearts are designed that way by God because ultimately to define a human, 
as far as I'm concerned, and hearing theologians, it's to obey. To be human is to obey. And Jesus came to be the perfect human. He is the perfect human to obey. So that's, but you got to keep it in, in, in its right um, category. Um, there is a law, and it needs to be perfectly obeyed if we want righteousness. And Christ is, again, the only one who can do it. So I would say get a handle on what the gospel is. Get a handle on Christ, his person, and his work. You'll clearly understand what works are involved there. He did them. He did the heavy lifting. We don't do the heavy lifting. He did the heavy lifting. And so an abuse would be when I come to church and go, you know, Todd, why are you here? I, I, I'm, I'm loving God and keeping his commands. And as Michael Horton said in his book, Christless Christianity, um, we tried that. That's Adam. Didn't get it done. Didn't get it done. So it can be real basic in our own hearts. Every Sunday, or we're there to receive a gift once again, a gift that's in heaven ascended. That's Jesus Christ. The heavy lifting has been done. So that, it can be abusive that way. Where I know I could, I, I, I can abuse it by thinking, oh, I have a law gospel paradigm, and I don't really need to look at the details of the Bible because everything's law and gospel, which that would be an abuse, right? I get the paradigm. I get the difference. And so every sermon sounds exactly the same, and it's either law or gospel, and that would be an abuse in, the, in a different sense. It's just laziness. And you're not actually looking to see what the Bible says in the details. And, and God's word is inspired and God's word is powerful and God's word is necessary. And we should do the hard work of knowing what it means and teaching it in your class instead of just lazily always just saying, oh, it's a law gospel, law gospel, law gospel. Um, that, would, that would be the kind of abuse that happens. And so then people would say law gospel is bad because I've seen it before. I, we don't want to be those kinds of Christians. We want to take the Bible all seriously, look at the details, but know full well from the details there's law in both Testaments and there's gospel in both Testaments and we need Christ and we need to remember that way. Another way it would be abused is if people use it just for living however they want to live. Well, Christ paid it all. He did everything, so I'm going to live however I want to live. Some of us were just talking about that. Well... You don't understand. You don't get it. <laughs> okay. But what I would plead with you guys regarding is don't try to correct that problem by tinkering with Romans 1 to 5. Okay. Don't, don't make justification in part by works to try to get people to do the right thing. Okay. They, they should be saying to you, does this mean I can sleep around? Right. Or does this mean I can get drunk? Does this mean I can lie, cheat, steal, be corrupt? Because it's all grace. They should be saying that so that you, like Paul in Romans 6, because you've been so clear, like Todd was, you've been so clear that you can say, may it never be. You've been joined to Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been raised unto newness of life. But I'll get on that hobby horse all day long. If they're not asking the question, you've not been clear about law gospel. You've not been clear about gospel. But... You follow me? You see what I'm saying? People should be asking that. And then we can say, no, 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 Don't do that. Let me show you of the magnificence of what it means to be joined to Christ. But that would be a, an abuse. Uh, living however you want to live. And, and, and utilizing our verbiage 
to justify it, and it's not justified. Okay, next question. Sorry, I had to chime in there. Um, <laughs> next question is for you, Chris. Um, we've already talked about it a little bit, so save your breath for a longer question later, but at least touch on this. Um, how does a, a good law gospel distinction help guard us against legalism? It's a misnomer to think of legalism equals law. Pastor Pat drew attention to that last night, today. And often people think of law equals legalism. But we think of what an ism is. It, it, it's making something out to be the, um, oh, here's the approach that I can be accepted by God, whatever ism you want to put into its place. So legalism, I'm going to, as a sinner, approach God based upon law-keeping. So it's helpful to, to define that. Now, in light of that, then, we can just look at Scripture to see how does Paul, what are the dangers of legalism, of trying to earn God's favor by our law-keeping, to be justified by our law-keeping as a sinner. Um, and so we look at passages like Romans 2, which we've seen, right? You have the law written on the heart. Uh, the doers of the law will be justified. So he's showing the impossibility as sinners to fulfill that mandate. And then what does he do in the end of chapter 2? And often we f- forget that. He says, those who rely on the law and boast in God. So that these are the Jews. What they do is they respond to the law by relying on the law, the works of the law, and to, 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 to be accepted by God. And he goes to a, a list. Those who say you should honor God, do you dishonor God? Those who say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He goes through this whole list of hypocrisy. Because what they're doing is, on one hand, saying, well, here's God's law, but we can keep it based upon our good works as sinners. And he says, that's hypocrisy. And he leads us to chapter 3 to say there's no none righteous, no, not one. We're all condemned. So legalism, when it comes to an unbeliever trying to earn God's favor through the works of the law, it's judgment. It's condemnation. There is no hope. There is none righteous, no, not one. So it's a danger to communicate that kind of relationship to God to unbelievers. It is a danger to communicate that relationship to God to believers. And that's Galatians 3. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, who's bewitched you? (laughs) If you've begun by the Spirit, why do you think you're going to be perfected by the works of the law, by the flesh? And in chapter 5, he goes through that amazing list. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, who, who unites us with Christ... Right? He unites us with Christ's perfect obedience, his law-keeping, and his redemptive work, paying for the curse of the law. So if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That is, relating to God, as Pastor Pat showed us, trying to be justified by the works of the law. You're not under that relationship to God through the works of the law. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he goes through the list of the flesh. You know them, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. We don't need to go through the whole list. What happens when the believer thinks that he can earn God's favor, God's blessing, by coming underneath, in his, in his Christian growth, underneath the mentality of the works of the law? Paul says the flesh will be ignited, as it does, because it's a me trying to accomplish it, do better, try harder, to make God happy with me as a Christian. And what that's going to do is ignite the prideful flesh, and it produces this kind of fruit. He says, but you're not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You, you know the list. So it's, it's instrumental for Paul on two levels to write to those who are trying to earn God's favor as an unbeliever, to justify themselves based on the works of the law. They'll be condemned. 
There's no hope there. In fact, it's deceptive and leads to, to judgment. For the believer who falls into that trap, it is dangerous. It, it will ignite the flesh, not because the law does it. Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good. But it's because me and my selfish pride think that God is going to do something good for me because of my law-keeping, my obedience, or my penance. And you know what it looks like. We all struggle with this, right? Ah, I've been going through trials. Lord, what have I done wrong? You're not happy with me. Rather than the mentality of, wow, he loves me in Christ. Trust in that promise, so he's training me. He's training me because I'm his child. He loves me. He's proclaimed that in Christ. But we fall into the trap of, well, no, he's against me. So if I can do more, try harder, then I can get on his good side. That's, Paul says that, that's dangerous in the church. The other side is saying, well, look what I've done, so he's blessing me. Look what they've done, so he's blessing them. And it's all built around pride and self-glory and his pat. Let us in Philippians 2. He's not exalted. We don't proclaim him in his glory. So it's huge, both, both sides, believer, unbeliever. Awesome. Thanks. Here's a question I'm dying to know the answer to. So I'm going to ask Pastor Mike Holloway, and uh, he can give us some, some wisdom for married men. Is our relationship to our wives a gospel relationship or a law relationship? Well, I get the easy ones. Um, let me uh, let me read some scripture. Let's let's look at a couple of passages. Actually, three. Uh, Colossians chapter three, verse nineteen. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What what is that a statement of? Is that a statement of law or is that a statement of gospel? That's law, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Guess what? Your wife is one of your neighbors, all right? That's, that's a statement of law. Okay, let's go, to, uh, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's look at that. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. More instruction given to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Is that law or is that gospel? It's law, all right? Matter of fact, uh, one of the characteristics of law is there's a sanction associated with it. There's a penalty associated with it. Let's keep reading and see what it says. Um, Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. We'll deal with that in a minute. So that your prayers may not be hindered, all right? What's What's the sanction if you don't love your wife in an understanding way? Your prayers are not are, are going to be hindered. What's the passage we usually go to when we talk about husbands and wives? Ephesians Ephesians 5, right? Let's go there. Ephesians 5. Thank you. Verse 21. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also you wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, wives submit to your husbands. What's that, law or gospel? It's law. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. What's that again? Law. Law. Ah, but now we have something else come into play. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Is there any gospel there? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. The basis of your relationship, men, with your wives, your, your marriage is a picture, an example of how Christ loves the church. And how Christ loves the church. Does Christ love the church based on the works that the church does? Absolutely not. So what is that? Is that law or is that gospel? That's gospel. That's gospel. So consequently, the basis of my marriage relationship my wife, with my wife is a gospel basis. All right? It is, I love my wife as Christ loves the church. I love my wife no matter what she does. That love is unconditional. I could be married to the worst woman in the world. Or worm. Or worm. (laughs) Hey, it fits, right? God was looking out for me. I am still called to love her. My love is not dependent upon her actions. But many of the times, I do a lot of marriage counseling, all right? A lot of marriage counseling, the husband and the wife come in, and guess what they start talking about? Well, if my wife would do this, then I would act the right way towards her. And then the wife, well, if my husband would do this, then I would act the right way towards him. So they are operating in their marriage relationship on the basis of what? On the basis of law or gospel? Law. Law. And what happens in that kind of a relationship? Since we are still sinners, what is going to happen if that's the basis of your marriage? It's going to have huge problems. It's going to have huge problems because that's not how God has called us to relate to one another. He has told me to love my wife. That is a command. So is there law? Yes. But that law is within the realm, within the basis of the gospel. It's, it's, it's nuanced, all right? Yeah, yeah, right, no more marriage counseling. So this is a case where there is law and there is gospel, both operating within that relationship, but depending upon the, the object of the relationship, whether it's how I view my marriage, how I view my actions in my marriage, Versus how I view God's commands to me within that makes a difference. Makes a huge difference in how I actually live with my wife. 
how I treat her, how I love her, how I respond to her when she doesn't meet my expectations. I am called to love her unconditionally. Um, I'm sure there's a zillion questions and angles we could take Mm -hmm. on that. Um, But I think it's important to see both are there. And and Ephesians 5, right, is in the context of Ephesians 5.1, which is the gospel. It's in the context of Ephesians 4.1, which is the gospel, which is in the context of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, which is what? The gospel, the great salvation God has given me. So now those law commands that we just read, those are within the context of the gospel of Christ, because I've been forgiven in Christ, because I, who am a sinner, an enemy of God, was loved by God enough to send his son to die for my sins. Now I'm to love my wife in that same way. Awesome. Mike Grimes, we're going to go to you, um, jump around a little bit. Um, to set up the question, uh, so you guys know, one of the things we did in preparation for this and the weekend, um, having decided this would be a great topic for us, um, we read some things together, a whole bunch of different articles and um, book chapters dealing with this topic and found it to be helpful. So on our Wednesday mornings, we would talk about different chapters and have discussions and just trying to find some good resources about this issue and Who's on the team? Who's not on the team? What's the history? All that kind of stuff. So, Mike, if you want to talk about some of the positives, books to recommend, good things to read. Yeah, uh, one of the things I found that was super helpful and might be easily accessible for you to get quickly into your hands, um, R. Scott Clark. Um, he's a fellow Nebraskan. Uh, he's over at Westminster Seminary, California. He has uh, a blog that he has taken a lot of opportunity to address this issue of law and gospel. Uh, some of the stuff we read, uh, one of them was actually a compilation that he did of a lot of different quotes from a lot of different men who have some great quotes that are succinct, they're short, uh, but they're clear and they're helpful in understanding the distinction between law and gospel and the relationship as well. Uh, so if you go and check out his blog, it's Heidelblog is what it's called. Um, that article would be there and a lot of other ones like that. Uh, just helpful for you to read through some of his stuff. It's real long and lengthy and some of it though has those short little um, blips and takes excerpts from other places. Uh, so Heidel blog, H E I D E L B L O G. Google, Google, Google. Uh, law and gospel, Scott Clark. Yeah. And you'll find it. And you'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> law, gospel, Scott Clark. Boof. There it is. Um, there goes your weekend. So he's got a lot of helpful stuff. Uh, also, one of the things that we found super helpful and it was, it was really kind of eye-opening, um, a lot of you have probably read this and we've read it before as well, Christless Christianity, uh, as already mentioned earlier by Michael Horton. Um, that book written uh, really addressing the moralistic therapeutic Christianity, um, people trying to push moralism uh, do this stuff, try harder, do more, try harder. Uh, and he has a chapter in there, I think it's chapter four in that book that we read again. And it was amazing to see as you consider these distinctions between law and gospel and the relationship between them and how we ought to view them and how they're helpful for us uh, to understand scripture, uh, to see that if we have a misunderstanding of law, that's what then pushes you into that moralistic 
lifestyle of trying to do more, try harder. Um, so that was very helpful to read that one. So Michael Horton. Uh, also, some of the reformers, Pat's been mentioning as well, Calvin, uh, Luther, Owen, those guys. Um, a lot of stuff. We have, I could uh, give you the list of stuff we read as well. There's too many to mention. It'd be too much spelling and writing, but a lot of good stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe a little bit of context for the uh, Scott Clark quotation list. What he's trying to do is show that this is the consistent view of Protestants. So he's sampling from all different people, different ages and different eras to say, look, the law gospel distinction um, is not is not just for one particular camp or one particular group. Some people who don't like the law gospel distinction um, would want to say, well, that, that's, that's a Luther thing. That's, that's not a Calvin thing. That's not actually a reform thing. It's a Lutheran thing. So just so you know, that's part of the debate. And Scott Clark goes out of his way to give a million and one quotations from Calvin and other Protestant reformers to show, no, this is actually where there was um, agreement uh, by Protestants, not just reformed, not just Lutheran, not just these guys, you know, this guy or that camp. No, this is this is a common thing because it's coming out of Catholicism where they're blurred law and gospel and the Protestants saw that, no, they need to be kept separate. So just just so you know, the context. Good with that. OK, awesome. Mike Holloway, you want to talk about history and how history can help us in all of this? Mike's, uh, Mike Grimes' comments are perfect lead into mine. I actually made some notes on this because I think it's important to actually hear what, uh, what people said in history. Um, Pat has mentioned a number of times that this is kind of viewed as a Luther thing. Um, actually, uh, Luther starts to pick it up, and he develops it uh, in church history. And uh, let's keep in mind, church history is not authoritative for us. Uh, the scripture is our authority. But uh, we do believe the Holy Spirit has worked through the history of the church, and the Holy Spirit has worked through certain men of the church to teach us things so we don't all have to start from scratch when we come to the Scripture. Um, Luther was an Augustinian monk, all right? Uh, so he was a monk that was founded on the teachings of Augustine, or Augustine, whichever one you like. And Augustine's big uh, challenge, his opponent at the time, was Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius did not believe in original sin. In other words, Pelagius did not believe that man was born with a sin nature. Uh, Pelagius believed that man had good within him and his sin nature was good. And therefore, Pelagius believed you did not necessarily need grace since you weren't necessarily a sinner. Well, Augustine responded to this. A thousand years before Luther, Augustine is writing against this, and he sees a distinction between law and gospel. Uh, let me read you a couple of things from him. Um, Augustine wrote, Justification is a free gift from God given through faith, not by the law of works, but by the law of faith, not by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit not by the merits of deeds, but by free grace. Augustine saw a distinction and the need for us to understand our sinfulness before God and how we did not keep the law. Uh, that's shown by another quote from him. 
He says, thus the law and grace are so different that the law is not only useless, but actually an obstacle in many ways, unless grace assists. This shows, moreover, the function of the law. It makes people guilty of transgression and forces them to take refuge in grace in order to be liberated and help to overcome evil desires. It, that is, the law, commands more than liberates. It diagnoses illness but does not cure. Indeed, far from healing the infirmity, the law actually makes it worse in order to move a person to seek the medicine of grace more anxiously and insistently because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So a thousand years before Luther defines law and grace in much the ways we're talking about it today, Augustine was talking about it in not quite the same way, but in similar ways. Um, so that moves us up to Luther. Um, the environment Luther is dealing with historically is the medieval Catholic Church. Um, the statements from the Council of Trent from 1546 probably give us as good an understanding of uh, the medieval Catholic Church's teaching and what Luther was coming out of. Uh, when, when Luther said, as Pat mentioned earlier, I hate God, he hated God. His statement was based on the fact that God's law was, was so perfect and God so holy, Luther knew he could never attain to it no matter how hard he tried. It was impossible. He understood that as he was going through the book of Romans, as he was teaching Romans to his seminary students, he was confronted with that in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And so Luther begins to write. And what he's writing against is this kind of a statement from the Council of Trent. Um, the Council of Trent teaches that, quote, the Ten Commandments are obligatory for Christians and that the justified man is still bound to keep them. Uh, the Catholic Catechism today refers to that statement by the Council of Trent and says this, says the bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of teaching all people and of preaching the gospel to every creature. Listen to how they define the gospel. So that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Okay. Did you get that? The observance of the commandments, what's that a synonym for? Law. Law. So that's what Luther is coming out of. That's what he's battling against. And here's what he writes. The law says, do this, and it is never done. That is, keep the law, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Christ does it for us. In his, in his Luther Works publication, he writes, Now I ask you, what good will anyone do in a matter of theology or scripture who has not yet got as far as knowing what the law and what the gospel is? Or if he knows, disdains to observe the distinction between them. Such a person is bound to confuse everything, heaven and hell, life and death, and he will take no pains to know anything at all about Christ. Well, Luther saw the distinction between law and gospel as very, very important. Um, Calvin picks up on this. Calvin is the next generation 
from Luther, all right? Calvin writes this about Galatians 10. The law holds all men under its curse. From the law, therefore, it is useless to seek a blessing. A couple more from Calvin that I think are helpful. On Romans 10, verse 8, we spent time in Romans 10 this morning with Pastor Pat. He writes, the contrast between law and gospel is to be understood. And from this distinction, we deduce that just as the law demands work, the gospel requires only that men should bring faith in order to receive the grace of God. In Luther's comments on Isaiah chapter 53, the great passage on the atonement in the Old Testament, he writes, the law always accuses. The law only begets death. It increases our condemnation and inflames the wrath of God. The law of God speaks, but it does not reform our hearts. God may show us this is what I demand of you. But if all our desires, our dispositions and thoughts are contrary to what he commands, not only are we condemned, but as I have said, the law makes us more culpable before God For in the gospel, God does not say you must do this or that, but believe that my only son is your redeemer. Embrace his death and passion as the remedy for your ills. Plunge yourself beneath his blood and it will be your cleansing. Notice how Calvin transitions between the condemnation of the law and our salvation in Christ. Um, it's beautiful the way he does it. Now, that has to do with our justification. Um, part of the historical understanding of law and gospel is understanding how it applies to us as Christians as we grow into Christ-likeness, our, our sanctification, all right? Uh, Luther and Calvin both thought the law was not just to condemn us, although it did that, in, in trying to obtain salvation by our own works. But they believed the law was for believers as well. So now that we've come to faith, how do we live? What are we called to do? Well, as believers, we are called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, not for salvation, but out of the motivation of joy and thankfulness to God. We want to love him and serve him, right? So they made the point very strongly that, yeah, we should follow the law. They use the Ten Commandments as the embodiment of it. Um, Luther's small catechism starts out with the Ten Commandments in it, his, his teaching tool to teach people how are they to live as Christians. Uh, one of the things that happened shortly after the Reformation, after Luther, uh, Luther posts his 95 Thesis at the door, and people start to see salvation is by grace alone and faith alone, and they don't have to be in allegiance to the Catholic Church anymore. As people start to live, guess how? Their lives start to look like a mess because they start to think, well, then I can live any way I want. Matter of fact, Luther looked at his congregation after a while and said, you people are living like pigs. That's the word he used. Luther was very blunt with his language. You're living like pigs. And so he wrote a catechism, the small catechism. And he's, he, he, he exposits the Ten Commandments. And he says, how are you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Well, the first four is how you do that. The first four commandments of the ten, the, the first table of the law. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, the, the second six, the second half of the commandments. You, you don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. You don't covet. Okay. Um, these are how we then live the Christian life and how we show love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, Calvin did the same thing. He, he's got a little blue book. I think it's called Truth for Life. It's like a mini institutes. It's, it's only about, it's, real, it's, it's really maybe 70 pages long, and it's on a little bitty pages like this. You can read it in about 25, 30 minutes. His second section is the Ten Commandments. Um, not because he thinks the Ten Commandments save us, but because now that we are Christians, now that we have believed and are justified by Christ and are declared righteous, this is how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So historically, it isn't just Luther. It's Augustine, it's Luther, it's Calvin. We could go on and on and on. If you go to the R. Scott Clark articles, you'll see that's the case. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Um, Mike has taken notes from... John MacArthur on answering questions and uh, John in a Q&A he'll like get two questions answered <laughs> I think he just picks a, a question he likes and goes on and on and on so and the, all these people lined up in the, behind the microphone waiting to ask their question <laughs> anyway they just tell him to sit down so thank you Mike for being John MacArthur-esque <laughs> history is a big topic <laughs> We could write a history on Mike Holloway's history lesson. All right. Frank, if you want to just give us a brief insight uh, as to pastoral motivation by us for doing a retreat like this and talking about these issues. Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, start by saying my name is Frank Barber, and I'm a recovering legalist. <laughs> it's been well, hello, two. Hello, Frank. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's... <laughs> now you got to get ready to clap here. It's been two minutes since I last valued my self-righteousness. Last week it was two seconds. Now I'm up to two minutes, so I'm doing better. Um, yeah, I, at the end of the day, um, the great thing about doing what we're doing is being mindful of the fact that we got it. We need a right understanding of law and gospel. And the reason why is because we need to crush our self-righteousness. I, I joke about it's been two minutes since I last valued my self-righteousness. Um, I'm not sure it's so much of a joke, right? I mean... I love myself. I, I want to do something. Uh, and I know you guys suffer from the same issue. So a right understanding about law and gospel crushes my self-righteousness. But um, as my self-righteousness gets crushed, as your self Righteousness gets crushed. There's an elevation of Christ's righteousness. And Pat touched on this uh, last night. You know, what's one of the motivators of why we're here 
It's the glory of Christ. So as I'm crushed, as you're crushed, as we are crushed in our self-righteousness, we are uh, in awe, more in awe of Christ's righteousness and his glory and his uh, exaltation. So that when I, and this is from Philippians 2, so when I go to Philippians 2 as a believer and I see in Philippians 2 in the first part of, uh, of chapter 2, I see that we're supposed to consider others, what, more important, right, than myself? Well, how, how do I do that? Oh, <laughs> I have an example. And the example is no one uh, less than or other than Christ himself. That though he uh, was equivalent to God, right? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count um, equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, he, he lowered himself in humility. Um, and so, so when we think in terms of, you know, how, how, how do I love, uh, how do I love you? How do I love my wife? How do I do these things? How, how do I be other oriented? Right? The first thing I have to recognize the otherliness uh, the first place I need to go is to Christ, right? So when I think of others, for me, for you perhaps, the first thing you need to think about is Christ. And in light of Christ, then I can now love others. I can serve others. So that when I go to church tomorrow, it's not about what I'm going to get out of it. Although I do receive, but it's more about what I can give, what I can do. And then lastly, to wrap up, thinking about Philippians, Philippians 1, Philippians 1.27. That we're supposed to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Well, how do I do that, Right? When I have a right understanding, when my self-righteousness has been crushed and I'm glorifying Christ's righteousness and rejoicing in his righteousness, you know what? Now all of a sudden I'm living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then just that sense of striving together side by side with one mind and one spirit. Um, and doing that for the sake of the gospel. So, All right. so lunch is coming soon, but we have time to do some more questions. So I thought I was going to, this was like a five minute prime the pump thing, but it turned into like 45 minute prime the pump thing. So typical pastoral error um, on my part. So questions you guys have about anything, everything, we could talk offline if you want, but if you want to ask now, Keith. Yeah, I'll open it up to whoever wants to answer up there. With your understanding of the law and the hospital, how 
how has that changed the way you do ministry? Who wants to take it? And seriously, let's make these short answers. Uh, ten. They gave Chris yeah. the mic. Yeah. He's asked for it to be short. I think like, Dallas so, was a better choice. <laughs> I was given all these principles for counseling, you know, from I don't want to name names, but <laughs> how to this, how to that. Um, fix this marriage this way, given this prescription. And uh, I saw people coming back frustrated, broken, more prideful. Yeah, I began to realize as I'm reading Perkins on Art of Prophecy, it's Art of Preaching, he's saying, God understand law and gospel. It starts to help me understand that the how to's are giving them law, and if they don't understand their union with Christ, they're not going to approach it appropriately. So that started changing how I deal with counseling. Lay out the law, but exposes their heart, their self-righteousness and self-works to one another and to God and lay out the glory of what Christ has done and call them to repent of their self-righteousness, self-works, and rest in Jesus. So it really became, as Paul said, I boast in Christ and proclaim Christ. And he started realizing, wait a minute, that needs to reflect Sunday school ministry. It needs to be all of Christ proclaiming Christ. And I'm starts to fit <laughs> um unfortunately we all have this broken you know record in our hearts right and so as, in, as you're dealing with one another as i'm dealing with counseling and i'm being frustrated i'm falling to the trap of the works of the law and when i do well and i go back and said hey that was successful pride works of the law i need christ i need to remember his righteousness so it affects how i relate to people too because i have the same heart it's radical <laughs> it's radical Eric Ball. I, I think sometimes I get a little confused as to uh, the emphasis on not worrying about doing more and trying harder. Um, because I see things in the Bible, like in Thessalonians, where Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to walk in there pleasing to God and, and to excel still more. Um, or in Ephesians, not to walk in a manner that would grieve the Holy Spirit. And I realize that those are all both, and every time these things come up are wrapped in the gospel. If you just look at the context and you go to the first parts of, of those letters. But there is a do more, try harder type of a thing based on what Christ has done for us, I would say. Is that a fair statement? Um, that we really, there is effort involved, I guess? Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate so much, Eric, what the way you've formulated the question as far as in its, in its context, it is gospel, right? I mean, it's t connected. It's a letter, right? It to goes together. It's grounded in, founded in the gospel. But because of that, I'd be with you. Do more, try harder, <laughs> right? But it's out of gratitude. It, it's totally different. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... It's what we mean by what we say, right? Everything has a context. Um, but I, I appreciate that because we don't want to say you, you, you don't do. We, we don't want to say that, right? But one, one thing, just short history would be, uh, I'll go super fast on this. 
in our age or the, the, the previous era, generation before us, when they recovered biblical inerrancy, if you will, in evangelicalism, and there's a battle there, okay? People like R.C. Sproul leading the battle, like, no, we believe every word is true, every letter is true. We're not theological liberals like a lot of big denominations became, okay? Every jot and tittle, Jesus says, is from God. So then it seemed like a good idea to people like us to start teaching every word, maybe weeks on one word. Okay, we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're so committed to inerrancy that we're, we're just going to spend a zillion years on one word kind of thing. It's commendable. But one downside would be forgetting it's First Thessalonians. It's a letter. And, and therefore, it's, its natural environment is a gospel environment. And so we, we, we forget, and it's easy for me to be a legalist preacher in Ephesians because I forgot by the end what was at the beginning. So it's a both end. Every word is true, but the whole is true, and you need to look at the whole to understand the words. And so we just have to be kind of cautious uh, about that. Brian, you had a question. Yeah. So you mentioned there are other believers even in our camp who would deny these kinds of things. You, uh, the law gospel distinction, mm-hmm. or at least mm-hmm. not get it. It doesn't seem like that's motivated by like just a different reading of scripture. Do you think there's something else be something they're trying to protect or something a different motivation that kind of underlies that or one minute. <laughs> that's right. I don't I don't know the motivations, but I do know I want people to behave better than badly. Right? I don't like it when I behave badly. I don't want you to behave badly. I don't want you to be a jerk in your house. I want you to be a good husband. Less counseling for me. I mean, so, so what can I do to get you to behave better? So I think sometimes that drives it. I, I, I hear people talking against easy believism, a book I just read called Faith Alone that doesn't teach faith alone. <laughs> okay? And it just goes on a, on a tangent. Faith obeys faith does this faith does this faith does all these things faith is committed and i'm like no faith is in jesus (laughs) and but i like the sound of it because he's trying to argue against a dead faith and i don't want people to have dead faith but he ends up teaching salvation by faithfulness so i think one motivation might be we got to get people that behave and i just want to keep saying let's get them to behave a la romans 6 way of thinking not tinkering with justification way of thinking is part of it. Another part of it is for fear of the boogeyman. Um, and the boogeyman is covenant theology. Okay. Whether you know what it is, you don't know what it is. It's the boogeyman to a lot of people. And so if, if, if covenant theologians believe in a law gospel distinction, we can't because we might become covenantal. Okay. It's sort of like saying, well, you know, they believed in the Trinity too. (laughs) It's like, so we can't, I mean, it's just, but Chris talked about the federal headship, foidos, the Latin word that means covenant. And you go, well, so we're going to deny federal headship. And actually some people do because they're terrified that it's going to lead to covenant theology because it is covenant theology. Um, That's part of it. Covenant theologians have held to a 
law-gospel distinction because of the federal representation of Adam and Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. Adam broke the law. I don't know beyond that. Other questions? Yep. Matt. Sorry. Uh, Understanding that our role with the law now as believers is out of gratitude and knowing that some aspects of the law are not for us today that you alluded to, how do you read your Bible and discern what aspects are for us to follow and which aspects are not? Carefully. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Some people say Ten Commandments. Some people say what Jesus has repeated. How do you get through that? I, I'm just going to, seriously, I'm going to try to be careful. And in the last session, I for sure want to talk about it, how other believers have talked about it before us. Um, but seriously, I, I, I need to be careful, right? We do have law. It's written on our hearts. It's always relevant. But we're not under the Mosaic law system that was for national Israel. Levitical law system for Israel. It's not, that's not it. But you don't always know, right? Which, which, what's Paul talking about in Romans 6? Well, it's close to a justification context. You know, it's a great question. What else? Yep. Chris, I'm here you Well, Romans 5.12, he answers that because he, he talks about us being um, declared sinners in Adam, but he, then he says, because all sinned. So well, he, at least Augustine has looked at that. There's both a personal responsibility because we're united to Adam um, and that we are sinners from birth, Psalm 51. Psalm 58, estranged from birth. This is personal responsibility. Um, but when you get to the actual nuts and bolts, of that relationship to God, it's grounded in representation in Adam. Um, now, they're great because of the nature of covenantal representation. They're great illustrations. Um, we, we live in a constitutional relationship with our president. When our president declares war, you declare war too. You're in a constitutional relationship. Now, you're responsible. You're part of that constitutional relationship. It's so what you do, as represented by President Obama, uh, there's personal responsibility. At the same time, he represents you. And that's just the nature of covenantal um, relationships, covenantal transactions and agreements. Um, so you look at Christ, and we can say, well, he's, he's fulfilled the law for us perfectly. But because you've been united to Christ and his spirit works within you, we then live out. Uh, we bear fruit in light of that relationship. And so I love to bring it back to Eric. Actually, we actually strive. I mean, really, we do. 
because of the power that's at work within us. Paul can say, I strive more than anyone else, but because of the grace of God in me. The illustration I think is very helpful is if you gave your children um, a response. You, you went on vacation and said, okay, now you pay for all the bills. Strive hard. It's an ability. You can't do it. They have no resources. But you say, okay, here's the bank account. Strive hard. So which one actually is actually striving and excelling in joy and fellowship and relationship? Well, the one who has all the resources. And for us in Christ, it's done, secured. And we live out of those resources. But the problem is we forget. And we fall back into that Adam connection. Kurt. Yep. Getting back to the Catholic Church history, so maybe my dark history about Luther. Um, Augustine was on the right path. Luther was there to correct the path, so to speak. Was the Council of Trent like the rubber stamp where they turned and weren't on the right path anymore, or where did they start to go wrong? Boy, the, I could talk a long time. <laughs> yeah, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> So therefore, I'll answer it. (laughs) Quick answer would be, Augustine was so right in so many things he said, okay? He he had a, a messed up view of the church, I would say, okay? But he had a right view of saving issues, salvation issues. So it got complicated with how you look at the church. But fast forward then to, I'm going to use Calvin. Calvin goes out of his way to quote Augustine all the time as a rebuke to Rome, right? Because you go from, what, third century-ish, fourth century with Augustine, and then you fast forward to the 1500s and Calvin, and he's, in a sense, calling Rome to repentance using their author. And Calvin's trying to prove the point that I'm not making stuff up. I'm not a cult leader. I'm actually saying what Christians have said for a long time, including your August, Augustine. That kind of makes sense? Then you have Council of Trent, which is a response to the reformers. Okay. And so they really dig their heels in and they really make it an anti-reformational kind of, kind of thing. Does that make any, does that help at all? Yeah. So before that, then was there a turning point where they were? That, that would be Mike's long answer. I mean, right. I mean, it's just, it, it's complicated, right? And how things get so off track. Okay, we do need to eat lunch, right, John? Okay, so uh, the, in the last session, I think what we're going to do is we're going to, I've got a quiz that's for fun, but to get you thinking about these issues, and we'll talk about the practicality of these issues. I also do want to touch on history and how people have viewed the law. Protestants have viewed the law, okay, um, and how they view it for unbelievers, believers, how to help read our Bibles a little bit better, learning from them. So that'll be the final session. Um, I'm changing that up a little bit. I won't preach a sermon. I'll just talk about the quiz, and I'll talk about the history and how we can read our Bibles better, learning from them. So it will be a good session, I promise. Um, but let me pray for lunch, and then we'll break. Father, thank you for these men for taking time away uh, from their lives, um, some of them families. Uh, please encourage them. Encourage them um, to look to Christ for significance. And not themselves. Encourage these men as well when they do go and interact with other people in the church or in their home or at work. To treat other people um, in light of how you've treated them. 
to treat other people in light of the gospel shown to them so that we would show grace to others because of the grace you've shown to us. You indeed are a great and awesome God who's mighty and powerful and thankfully willing and eager to save. Thank you for the fact that you have promised to save all who call upon your name. And we're so grateful to be able to know that we have eternal life because of the finished work of Jesus. May we live in light of that even now. Thank you for our food, for our fellowship, and for all the time that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.